0: Hi everyone, and thanks for coming back. Cherie is off this week, so I am here solo to talk about the Hunger Games prequel movie, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. As always, you don't have to watch the movie in order to listen to the episode, and since this movie just came out, I promise no spoilers. If you want to stop now and watch the movie first, it is currently available for rent on Amazon Prime. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about what I liked and disliked about the movie, breaking down some of the casting and writing, and talking about how it compared to the book. So let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while I check your cinematic pulse. So this movie takes place well before we ever see Katniss Everdeen, and it follows a young Coriolanus Snow, who you'll remember as the president from the Hunger Games movies, as he is tapped to be a mentor in the 10th Hunger Games. Snow is paired with the female tribute from District 12, and the movie chronicles his very personal experience with the Hunger Games and the lengths that he will go to to try to secure his future. I was hesitant to even read the book at first because I am always cautious of villain origin stories, I love a good villain origin story. Something that makes a person's motivations make sense. A good villain should have a fleshed out history, fears, and trauma that explain why he behaves the way that he does. But a true villain is not someone with whom we can empathize. Villain writing has really evolved over the past couple of decades. I would say even as recently as the 90s and earlier, villains were more of a caricature. and amorphous evil that did what they did just to give our heroes someone against whom they could triumph. However, after reading this book, I realized that this story is very much not the case. Uh, Suzanne Collins did an excellent job of fleshing out her villain, and I just knew that I had to see the movie when I heard it was going to be released. Wes and I went and saw this opening weekend, and he hasn't read the book. It was really interesting having both perspectives go into the movie because we both ultimately ended up liking it, but for different reasons. Wes liked it for the reasons that I liked the book. It took a flat character and realistically fleshed him out, showed the audience all of the choices that he had made during a pivotal time in his life, and made the negative choices actually make sense with the character's desires for power and self-preservation. I liked the movie because it took everything that I loved about the book and it fleshed it out on the screen in a way that not many books to movies ever can. They really tried to cram in all the important details and capture the intent of the book without sacrificing too much, which is a hard balance to strike when you have a book as your source material. They stayed true to the spirit of the story and it was interesting getting to watch the character of Corio, short for Coriolanus, and know all of his thoughts and motivations where Wes didn't. Even then, Tom Blythe did a fantastic job in portraying what book readers will know are Corio's thoughts and feelings, even though they're rarely directly conveyed in the movie. Wes and I got to basically watch two different characters go through the same thing. Wes saw someone with the best intentions get put in difficult situations and constantly make the wrong choice. I saw someone calculating and intentional get put in situations and choose whatever way would make him come out on top. You can watch the movie either way and the effect is ultimately the same, which really goes to show that they did a fantastic job translating this book from page to screen. So, speaking of Tom Blythe's excellent performance, the casting in this movie was surprising. Uh, Josh Andres Rivera played a very serious and sharp-witted version of the character of Sejanus Plinth, um, and he had some one-liners pulled directly from the book that he delivered with a tortured solemnity akin to Rami Malek in Mr. Robot. Um, there were lots of lines, actually, that they pulled directly from the book. They didn't bother trying to just rewrite dialogue. They stayed true really true to the source material Rachel Ziegler played Lucy Gray from District 12 after reading the books I expected them to cast someone who looked more like Katniss but after watching this I'm really glad they didn't Rachel's character sings a lot in this and I really think they cast her particularly for her voice um Honestly, her acting is kind of middle of the road. She really can't hold a candle to Tom Blythe. Again, he's amazing, but she's not terrible either. Um, but really, it's her voice that is the standout and and takes the cake every time she sang in this movie. I got absolute chills. I really wasn't expecting them to give her a southern twang, uh, but after rereading the book, I can't hear her lines any other way. Especially given that District 12 is supposed to be in the South Carolina area, her accent actually doubly makes sense. Viola Davis reprises a very similar role to one she's had before, giving a calm but unhinged performance as Dr. Volumnia Gall. Uh, Her portrayal was reminiscent of her performance as Amanda Waller in both renditions of Suicide Squad. Powerful and intelligent, but definitely off her rocker, which Viola Davis does very well. In this movie, it was just a little bit more visible, uh, the off her rockerness. Uh, The choice to give her one blue eye was, I feel like, a little on the nose, but I think ultimately it had the right effect. It made her look mad and uncomfortable, but it kept the audience's eyes trained on her because you couldn't look away from that eerie eye. So she was always very compelling every time she was on screen. And then her acting just drove her whole character home. Um, And then Peter Dinklage was another unexpected casting choice, though he always delivers his roles with the utmost gravity required of a situation. He took a character who came off as a little flat in the books, honestly, and just breathed this stuttering life into him and all of his lines. The result was a greater understanding on the part of the audience regarding his character, Dean Kaskahai Bottom's motivations. Honestly, um, I felt that that was something that was lacking in the books, and I'm really glad that they fleshed out his character more in the movie. We really didn't understand a lot of Casca Highbottom until like the very, very end of the book, and they used Dinklage's excellent acting to sneak in little Easter eggs and tidbits of his character's backstory that made his actions, especially towards Coriolanus, make a lot more sense. And that is something that's really hard to do when you're going from book to movie. Usually a movie has to delete details or dumb them down to make room for everything in a movie. And this movie, I mean, it did have to make a few... Uh, changes to the plot points to allow for more straightforward storytelling. I'll touch on a few, but it's really not necessary to pick them apart one by one because this movie did such a good job. The overall effect of the movie is the same, and most of the character actions result in the same outcome, but one of the major differences is that in the movie, the mentorship is a surprise, and it'll determine who gets the prize awarded by the school. In the book, the students were all expecting it, and it came as a real shock to Corio that he got the absolute bottom-of-the-barrel tribute. I, I bring this up because the effect of this change kind of cheapens that plot point in the movie. It honestly feels like bad writing. Like, oh, of course, there's a last-minute plot twist and the students have to mentor the tributes. I really think that it would have been better to leave it the way it was in the book. It, it could have been done in a really easy line of dialogue about how Corio was nervous for who he was going to get in the reaping. It, it really was, an un, like I said, an unnecessary change that, that cheapened the plot at that point in the writing. And considering that happens at the very beginning, you kind of set your plot off on the wrong foot for either book readers or, frankly, for people who are just going in blind, like Wes. They also changed the general attitude at the Capitol regarding the districts and the Hunger Games. In the movie, the academy students are already joking about their Hunger Games and about who is going to win, already treating it like it's a spectacle and not really taken seriously. In the book, it's actually that lack of mentality that is Dr. Girl's particular problem with where the games are at right now. No one in the capital is interested in watching the games because they all think they're horrible. They all really view the tributes as as children and people and they're disgusted trying to watch the Hunger Games. They, they don't want to watch them because they're horrifying. And that's just 10 years after the war. The citizens are already forgetting why the games were implemented in the first place. Not to say that the games are okay, I'm speaking strictly in terms of the plot of the story here, obviously. And that's why Dr. Gall throws a wrench into things and adds the Capital Children as mentors and quizzes them on ways to drum up engagement with the annual event. Not having this information, I think, does this plot point a major disservice. Um, And I really think it undercuts the whole point of why we're getting a prequel in the first place, which is a partial explanation of how humanity could wind up in such a state and why these people continue to behave this way and why the Hunger Games are important. They don't really explain that well enough um, with how people are treating the games already in the capital. Um, it, it undercuts why they're having to make so many changes and why Dr. Gall is even interested in the Hunger Games at this point. So I think they should have left that how they did it in the books. Ultimately, I absolutely love that they didn't break this up into more than one movie. The novel is broken up into three parts. The mentor, the prize, and the peacekeeper, which they do note at points during the film. There is a lot of content in this book, and at two hours and 37 minutes, this movie is not snack-sized by any means. But again, Coriolanus Snow is a villain. He does not need two or three movies for us to get behind him and wind up rooting for him, only to see him make the wrong choices. That would have... The opposite of the desired effect that this book was intended for. His descent into, for lack of a better term, villainy, needs only be condensed into one very long story, just like the book did. Really, what this movie and book serves to do is give us background information on how the Hunger Games came to be in the state that they are by the time that we meet Katniss Everdeen, and what Snow's motivations are that drove him to be the character that we eventually see. Additionally, it really fleshes out how the President Snow that we know could be so unnerved by and hate the character of Katniss. I will let you fill in those blanks for yourselves once you see the movie or read the book, but I will just give you the hint that there are a lot of parallels to be drawn in the character of Lucy Grey Baird and her music, even potentially some historical ones. I'll just leave it at that. As mentioned with all the singing in this movie, James Newton Howard flat out outdid himself with this soundtrack absolutely nothing like the original Hunger Games soundtracks. He teamed up with Yuja Wang, a decorated Chinese pianist, to create a score that was both thematic and emotional. The collaboration is reminiscent of his work with violinist Hilary Hahn on the score for The Village, which we also talked about. I really feel like working with someone else takes Howard Shore's work to a whole other level. Uh, my favorite tracks on this soundtrack are Planting the Cloth, Choreo in the Capitol, and Snow Lands on Top. So if you're interested at all, download the soundtrack off Spotify, Apple Music, wherever, and give those tracks a listen because James Newton Howard did an amazing job with this soundtrack. I was not expecting this soundtrack to be as great as it was. I love the Hunger Games soundtrack. It's got some, some definite standout themes, and we do hear some of those throughout the entirety of the movie. We hear the Capitol song. Come back. Um, that's played several times. And then, in, I will just say, there are some moments that connect to the later Hunger Games stories. And we do hear some very familiar themes woven into this soundtrack as well, in tribute of that. No pun intended. As far as production goes, I would love to talk about things like lighting and set direction and sound design, but that is really Cherie's domain. I noticed little things, but not enough to give you guys a review of that part. Um, We will definitely revisit this movie once you've all had a chance to see it, because there's a whole slew of things that I want to get Cherie's opinion on, and I'm really excited to ask her a bunch of questions. So, everybody text Cherie and tell her to ask for my Amazon password so she can watch this movie. No, I probably shouldn't say that on the podcast. (laughs) Oh, well. So, really, that concludes my episode on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. My overall opinion, absolutely fantastic. Really, I give the movie, like, like can I do, like, 8.75? I'll just round it up. Like, a 9 out of 10. Honestly, it really did a phenomenal job of taking the book and translating it to screen. It is in the rare category of movies taken from books that were actually really done well. And I mean well. So, yes, highly recommend Go rent it on Amazon. Please, please watch it. Read the book if you haven't. Watch the movie first. I always recommend watching the movie first because if you read the book first, you're going to get let down. But even then, man, it is, it still holds up. In review, today we talked about what this movie did well and where it differed from the books, but really we talked about the character of Coriolanus and how this movie, just like its source material, ultimately did a fantastic job of fleshing out what was already a decent villain. Both Sheree and I are off next week, so please take some time and watch a movie that we've talked about that you haven't seen or go back and listen to us all over again. As for this movie, I will leave you with this final question. If you've watched the movie or read the book, who do you think is the songbird and who do you think is the snake? Roll credits. Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Please consider supporting us by becoming a member of our Patreon, where you can get access to show notes, vote on our upcoming episodes, and get exclusive downloads of our episode art. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your cinematic pulse.